At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, specifically, we remember Palm Sunday. Now, when I say that, some of you um, know exactly what I'm talking about. When I say Palm Sunday, you, you understand it. You, you, you've heard the Palm Sunday story. You've been in church all of your life, and this is just the, the 30th or 40th or 50th time in your life that you will have rehearsed these events. But for others of you, when I say Palm Sunday, you're like, I, I don't know, what is that? Well, whether you are very familiar with Palm Sunday or this morning is your first Palm Sunday to ever be a part of a church that celebrates this event, uh, just know that my heart for all of us is that we see this with fresh eyes and that we worship Jesus more as a result of what we see happen 2,000 years ago when he entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, celebrated with palm branches in the songs of his disciples. We're going to see that today as we kick off Easter week together by specifically looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. But before we do that, I want to just acknowledge that I love Easter. I just love it. This is my my favorite holiday of the year. And Easter is my favorite, not just because I like jelly beans, though I like jelly beans, and, and not just because of egg hunts, though I've hunted a few eggs in my day. Um, but I love Easter because of what it means, and not just what it means historically or inside of the church, but what it means to me. See, it's in this week that we not only remember that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, but we also, me personally, I remember that Jesus died for me. And I remember that his resurrection gives me the opportunity to live a new life as well. See, it was 31 years ago on Easter Sunday, 1990, that I trusted in Christ as my Savior, and my life has never been the same. And so, very personally, I I look at this week and these services and these scriptures with great affection, but it's not something that is limited only to me. This is something that is available to all of us for us to remember what Jesus has done, not just in history, though he did it in history, but what that means for each of us. And we're going to see that today as we look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. I want to read these verses for us, and then after reading these verses, I want to back up and make three observations that will help each of us personalize this message a little more. Luke chapter 19, Luke continues his gospel and says this, And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, friends, in these verses, we see the historical account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on what we know of as Palm Sunday. But I want us to see three things from these verses today. The first thing I want us to see is this. Worship the King. Oh, worship the King. We see worship well up around King Jesus, the King of Kings, as he enters Jerusalem on that day. But why was there worship? And how did it come about? Well, we need to look a little more in depth at these verses to find that out. First of all, we need to know the context of Luke chapter 19, because we have just parachuted in here 19 chapters into Luke's gospel. And so we need to understand how Jesus got to this point. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and ultimately his journey to the cross is something that was rooted in history, and it went all the way back to the beginning. You see, it was actually in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned that the first promise of God came regarding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and ultimately his death on the cross. A promise of God came that said that this serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that same seed of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the snake. It was a promise that one day a descendant would come and would defeat Satan, something that Jesus would ultimately fulfill as he went to the cross. So this journey goes all the way back in history. Well, let's fast forward a number of years to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Now, this is something that is very familiar to us. It is where Luke begins his gospel, but we need to remember that Jesus in Bethlehem did not begin his existence. He had existed eternally as the Son of God. But it was in Bethlehem that Jesus made his appearance for the next phase of his ministry for us. He was born to take on human flesh so that ultimately he might reveal God to us and then offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, fast forward again a few years, and Jesus sets his mind on the city of Jerusalem. One of the prominent features of Luke's gospel is this turn that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where his focus is on the city of Jerusalem. He turns his attention there, and he begins this long walk to that city, building with anticipation what would happen there. Jesus had gone a long way to get to Luke 9, 51, all the way from eternity past, all the way through the Garden of Eden, all the way through his birth in Bethlehem, but he was resolute in his focus to go all the way to the cross. Not only that, but in our verses that we just read, we see Jesus finally arriving in Jerusalem. We might think of it this way. 
If you've traveled on an airplane, uh, you know what it's like to make a connection, right? You begin in one place, and if you're flying far enough, you'll have to make two or three connections. And ultimately, you make that last connection, and you sit down on the plane that will take you to your final destination, and you take a little deep sigh, right? Made it. Next stop, Will Rogers Airport, right? That's, That's what you're thinking when you get to that spot. Well, after all of these connections, when Jesus makes this turn towards Jerusalem on that donkey, he's on the last leg of his journey going to the cross, a journey that had begun long ago. But with great anticipation, he is headed there. And make no mistake, Jesus knew what was awaiting him in that city. He knew why he was going there. In places like Luke chapter 13, verse 33, and chapter 18, verse 33, and in the rest of the gospel accounts, Jesus said this again and again and again. He was going to Jerusalem to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He was going there to die in our place. He had not only set his direction to Jerusalem, but he knew why he was going there. He was going there to die for us. And so we see the king coming and arriving on this last leg of his journey in this account. Now, when Jesus made that last connecting flight to Jerusalem, it began in the city of Jericho, which is about 15 miles up and over a hill from the city of Jerusalem. 15 miles and 3,500 feet of incline. That's what Jesus had left. But what happened on that last 3,500 foot incline? What what happened in that last 15 miles? Well, a lot. And just focusing on what happened in that last 15 miles helps us understand a little bit more why people were worshiping and celebrating Jesus as he made that last leg journey into Jerusalem. Because around Jesus, on that last 3,500 foot incline, that last 15 miles, a number of things happened and a number of lives were impacted. Think of what happened just in this last leg of the trip. Jesus met a man named Bartimaeus who was blind in the city of Jericho, and he heals him. He goes from blind, and then he could see. Amazing. So in the group that is gathering following Jesus to the city of Jerusalem, I'm guessing Bartimaeus was there because when somebody heals you of blindness, you don't just go, hey, thanks for stopping by, but you want to go wherever he goes. And he's going up to the city. He's going to the celebration. So he joins the crowd. Not only that, but also in Jericho, Jesus has an interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus. Was Zacchaeus tall or short? Short, you know the story. He was so short, he had to climb a tree, right? And he, we little Zacchaeus climbs a tree. He looks out and we think Zacchaeus is this cute, lovable, cuddly little character, maybe a stuffed animal. He's not. He was a tax collector. Nobody invited him to parties. And yet Jesus went to his house. But radically changed Zacchaeus' life. He becomes a Christ follower in that moment. And instead of exploiting his people, he is seeing a hope for his people in Jesus. And he joins the parade a former blind man, a former tax collector. They go up the hill a little ways. They get to the town of Bethany where Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had had died. But he didn't stay dead, did he? John chapter 11 lets us know that Jesus went to the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. And there was a great celebration. Now, I can imagine 
Lazarus, when Jesus raises him from the dead, he didn't just go, Jesus, thanks for stopping by my tomb. That was really nice of you. No, Jesus, where are you going, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going with you. And the crowd is growing. The former blind man, the former tax collector, the former dead man. Mary and Martha had been mourning the death of Lazarus in John 11. But they went from mourning to great rejoicing. Again, I'm I'm guessing they didn't just say, Jesus, it was good to see you again. They said, where are you going? Let's go with you into the city. And the crowd continues to gather the former mourners, the former dead man, the former tax collector, the former blind man. Jesus has a meal in this season of his life at the home of a man named Simon. John chapter, or Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 16 tells us this account. Now, what do we know about Simon? It says Simon, they call him Simon the leper, but Simon the leper had a house that people went to. Lepers weren't allowed to have houses. So that means he must not have been a leper. He must have been a former leper who Jesus had healed. And so in this last 3,500-foot incline, in this last 15-mile journey, just in that section, there are people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And that's not even talking about the disciples who had seen the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, had seen all these miracles transpire. That's not even talking about those who had heard Jesus teach with authority. That's not even talking about those who were seeing in Jesus their hope for all time. That's not even talking about the paralytics who were walking and dancing around him. This parade was something. Knowing who was there, it's no surprise that Luke describes them in 1937. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They didn't gather around Jesus because they were headed to Sunday school, because that's what you did on Sundays, or to go to church because that's just kind of what you did. They were gathering around Jesus to celebrate the revolution that he had brought to their lives. And remembering that and knowing that and knowing what he had done, not only in their lives, but in the lives of those around him, that added this emotional intensity to that moment so that they were literally celebrating and cheering who Jesus was in that moment. What a picture, what a picture of this entry into Jerusalem. Well, in that moment, it uh, should not surprise us that Jesus was sovereign. Uh, he, he is over everything, and so certainly he would be over this moment. But his sovereignty shows up here in that Jesus knows for this last leg of the journey, he's going to make it on the back of a donkey. This would fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and a prophecy from the Old Testament that when Messiah comes, he would enter on a donkey. And so he sends his disciples into the village, and he says, I want you to get this particular donkey, and I want you to bring it back to me. Now, we might wonder what what is going on with Jesus being sent into that area to get this one particular donkey. I mean, the disciples are given this very specific thing to say, which they say that produces the donkey. I mean, was this some kind of, you know, Jedi mind trick? You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. This is the donkey that Jesus wants. You know, what what is this? It's possible that the owner of that donkey had some kind of a dream or a vision or just understood when it was Jesus' disciples who were doing the request. But it's also possible that Jesus, who frequented this area, stayed in this area often when he would make his travels to Jerusalem, knew those landowners and had had told the owner of that donkey previously, hey, 
I'm going to need that donkey one day, so would you just keep it here? And, and one day, my people will come, and when they come and ask for it, would you give it to them? And they would say, yes, Jesus, we will do that. And so they show up, and they say, hey, the Lord has need of the donkey. And they said, by all means, then, take the donkey. Jesus was sovereign in this moment. He gets on the donkey, a picture of the entrance of a king. We, we, we see the donkey, and we think it looks a little odd, but... A donkey was a symbol for the Jewish people in light of Zechariah chapter 9, in light of some other elements of their history, of a king who was coming in peace. And so Jesus is making a declaration of his entry. And it's a declaration that his followers, his disciples recognized as such. They put coats down for him to sit on. They put coats down for him to walk on. They waved palm branches around him. They were recognizing Jesus as king, and they were celebrating him as such, singing over him the words of Psalm 118. Specifically here, Luke quotes 118, verse 26. Basically, a a song that points to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the the promised one of God. Now, previously in Jesus' life and ministry, when people would try to well up in some kind of public support and demonstration of who he was, Jesus would tell them what? Shh, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. But here, Jesus doesn't stop them. Why? Because it's time. It's the last leg of the journey, headed to the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, It's time for him to be recognized as such. And he makes this entrance to the city. Now, friends, when I share all of that about who Jesus is and the events of this first Palm Sunday, I want to give with it a challenge for you and me. Are we really worshiping the king? Are we really worshiping him in our hearts? Have we personalized this? Or have we made Christianity a subject or tradition? See, all too often in our world today, Christianity can just be an add-on. It's just something that we do. It's a part of our culture. It's something we inherited from our parents or our family. But friends, if we are to truly worship the King, we need to pause for a moment and think about who Jesus really is, and even more so, what He has done for us. For us. You know, I would give you a challenge this week, and this is a true challenge. That would be to take a piece of paper or take your phone in the notes section or however you want to do it, and I want you to make a list of the things that Jesus has done for you, the sins he's forgiven you of, the community he's placed around you, the mission he's given you to carry out, the family that he's provided you with, the prayers that have been answered, the faith that has been developed. Make a list. Make it personal. Not only related to you, but around those around you. What what has he done in the lives of those you love, those you care about, those in your church community, those that you know? Think about what he has done. And then Friday, when you come back to the Good Friday service, before you walk in, I want you to look at your list so that when you walk in this room, you're not coming to just a tradition. You're not coming just to a meeting. You're coming to a celebration of the one who has changed your life the one whose grace has revolutionized not only your present, but has forgiven your past and given you a hope forever. When you come next Sunday to Easter, don't just come in here in your nice clothes and think about that, but take that list out and look at it again. I am here today to celebrate the one who has done this for me. 
worship the king. But a second thing we need to see inside of these verses is to not miss the king. Don't miss the king. If Jesus' disciples worshiped the king, not all in this parade were worshiping Jesus. But there were some who missed him as king or rejected him or ignored him. Among them were a large group of Pharisees, a religious sect of the day. And they did not see in Jesus, the King of Kings, the promised Messiah or the Christ. Instead, they saw him as just a man. And they thought that the praise that was around him was therefore unwarranted. Look at what it says in, in, the, in the verses that follow here in verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Basically what they're saying is, hey, people do not receive that kind of praise, Jesus. They assumed that he would agree with them and say, you're right. Hey, everybody, quiet down, pipe down. Stop your singing. Stop singing Psalm 118, 28 over me. It's inappropriate because I'm not who you say that I am. This is what happened, by the way, in the book of Acts in chapter 14, first several verses when Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra. They perform a miracle and the people of Lystra uh, want to celebrate Paul and Barnabas as gods. And so they bring sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and they say, stop, 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 stop. You are not to worship us. You are mistaken in what is happening. That's what happens when humans are worshiped as God. But in this moment, Jesus receives their praise. In this moment, Jesus does not stop their celebration. As a matter of fact, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and he says, I tell you, if these people are silent, then the very stones would cry out. What's, what's Jesus saying there? He says, I'm not going to tell them to be quiet because they're right. It's inappropriate for the people of Lystra to worship Paul and Barnabas because they are not God. But it is altogether appropriate for these people, Jesus would say, to worship me because I am who they say that I am. Now, as they are celebrating Jesus in, in that very moment, and as they are worshiping him, Jesus says to them, he says, if they were quiet, the very stones would cry out. Now, in one sense, what Jesus was saying with that is he was saying, who I am is, is so evident that nature itself sees it. Psalms like Psalm 96, verse 12 Talk about how the, the ocean and, and the trees sing joy and praise to God. This sense that creation has an understanding of who God is because it was created by him. And there's a, a sense where all creation is declaring that glory to God. So there's a sense where what Jesus was saying was, he says, who I am is evident to all of nature. And it is being declared here today that if these people were quiet, you could not stop the fact of what is already true and what nature is a witness to. But I think there's something even more in this moment when Jesus says, let the stones cry out. And it has to do with the stones that would have been on that very mountain. See, Jesus, as he makes his approach to the city of Jerusalem that day, was going up and over the Mount of Olives. Now, it's called the Mount of Olives because of a couple of reasons. It's called the Mount of Olives because it's a mount, which means it's a mountain or a hill. And it's called the Mount of Olives because guess what's on it? 
olive trees, right? There's a number of olive groves on this mountain. So Jesus is going up and over this mountain. But what makes this particular little hill so interesting is because this hill has prominence in Jewish prophecy. Zechariah chapter 14 in verse 4 prophesied that Messiah, when he came to the city of Jerusalem, would approach it from the east down the western slope of the Mount of Olives. So because of that, there was an expectation that Messiah would come one day from that direction. Now, I want to look for a moment at what that view looks like. This is a modern picture from the Mount of Olives looking at the city of Jerusalem. And so this is the area down and then back up to the city. Now, when you see this picture, understand that in the foreground here are a number of rocks. You can tell that by looking at it, right? Well, what are those rocks that you see in that picture? Well, those rocks are stone caskets. And for 3,000 years, Jewish people have been buried on this hillside. Even in the modern history of Israel, people continue to be buried on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Why? The reason why they're buried there is because of this hope an expectation that one day Messiah will approach from that direction. And when he comes, there's a thought that there might be a resurrection of the dead. And so people who are buried on the western slope of the Mount of Olives will be buried with their feet facing the city so that when Messiah comes from their rear, they will stand up and join him in the procession into that city. These are the rocks around that area. But even more so, on top of each of these stone caskets, when Jewish people want to honor those who have died before them, they will put on top of those caskets, not flowers, but rocks. As Jesus is approaching the city down the Mount of Olives, the rocks around him are crying out with a hope of a Savior, with the hope that Messiah would one day come. What Jesus says is he says, All of history is pointed to the point that I would enter on this day. If these people don't sing this song, look around you at the area that is screaming it out. Something that is even more pronounced today as more and more people have been buried in this region. Friends, the sad reality, though, is that even though that location was so full of expectation of Messiah. Some in that century missed it, and some even miss it today. The Pharisees, mind you, were were people that had lots of degrees in education, lots of religion that they had practiced. They were people that should have known better, but they didn't. They missed the king. And even today, in our day, there are people with a lot of education with a lot of degrees after their name that want to get on television and documentaries in this day or want to stand up in classrooms and universities or want to write books that talk about how Jesus wasn't who he really said that he was. The fact that they think that, the fact that they miss it, doesn't change the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is the King of Kings, but it's possible for us to miss it. Don't let that be you. 
Don't miss who Jesus really is. Don't let another year go by. But today, recognize and remember that Jesus is the King of kings who came a long way to die on a cross for you and for me. Oh, worship the King. Don't miss the King. But the third thing that we need to see is that we need to be moved by the King. Be moved by the King. Now, we see this in verses 41 through 44. In these verses, we we see Jesus' reaction when he sees the city of Jerusalem. When he crests the Mount of Olives and he sees the city of Jerusalem in front of him, what is going through his brain? We might imagine the king approaching the capital city. He might have been thinking where he's going to place the throne, how he's going to redecorate the throne room. But that's not what Jesus was thinking as he crested that city. He was not even looking around at the crowds and going, these people are awesome. Listen to these songs and this celebration. But what we find out is that Jesus' reaction in that moment was not of celebration, but was weeping great tears. Luke 19, verse 41, when Jesus drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. Not just one tear staining his cheek, but he wept a deep and wailing reaction. Why did he react that way? Well, he reacted that way because he knew that the leaders of that city, the Pharisees are representation of it, but he knew that the leaders of that city and the nation of Israel was going to not receive him, but reject him in that moment. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Did you not recognize me, Jesus said, if you just would have recognized me as the Messiah, things could have been different, but you didn't. Now it's blind. You don't, even, you don't even see what is happening in front of you. For the days will come upon you, Jesus said, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus was weeping because he knew that the judgment of God was coming upon that city because they had not received him because they had missed the time of his visitation. They're they're going to be judged. And that judgment actually happened in history. About 40 years after Jesus approached Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the judgment of God came upon the city of Jerusalem when the Romans surrounded it and barricaded it, just as Jesus foresaw. And 600,000 residents of that city died and others carted off to slavery. Why was Jesus weeping? He was weeping in that moment because of what lay in front of people's rejection of him. He was not thinking of his loss in that moment. He was thinking of theirs. Warren Wiersbe talks about this. He says, he compares Jesus to Jonah. He says, Jonah in the Old Testament looked on the city of Nineveh and hoped it would be destroyed. While Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept because it had destroyed itself, Jesus' heart was moved in this moment because it had rejected him. Friends, if if you are here today and you have delayed responding in faith to Christ, you have walked away from him or you have rejected him altogether, know that the heart of Jesus towards you in this moment is not looking upon you and shaking his head, going, tisk, tisk, how dumb. 
Instead, he is weeping bitterly over you that you might repent while you have time. Jesus gave 40 years before the judgment of God came upon the city of Jerusalem. We don't know how long, how many days each of us have, but the attitude towards Christ, towards those that have not repented yet, is weeping over us with a desire that we repent while we still have time. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, sometimes people go, well, isn't that a little dark? I mean, this is Easter. This is where the sun dress. You know, what are you talking about with this wrath of God stuff? Well, I want to just acknowledge that talking about the wrath of God in this moment is actually a compassionate thing to do. It's what moved Jesus to tears in that moment. And it's what breaks our heart even today as we think about our city and our nation and the nations of the world and the people that don't know Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, Who, thank you, are the more honest men? Those who tell you plainly what the Scriptures say concerning this wrath of God or those who smooth it over or deny it altogether? Friends, it is not honest, it is not kind for us to not acknowledge that if we reject Christ, the wrath of God is what awaits But if we embrace Christ, if we worship him as king, if we trust him with our eternity, then tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy in a moment of repentance and new life. Friends, for all of us here today, may may we be moved by the king. If you do not know Christ as your savior, may his tears today motivate you to trust in him and to give your life to him and to embrace him by faith today. And if you're here today and you have known Christ and trusted in him, may may his tears move us to not keep this message to ourselves, but to reach out and to share it with others. Jesus is weeping for them to come unto repentance. May we share the good news of Jesus here in our neighborhood, among our friends, in our networks, around the world. May we proclaim this message even now. Would you pray with me? Father God, thanks for this truth that we have seen today. Thank you for this historic account of Jesus' entry and how it reminds us of who he really is, the King of kings. May we worship him today, not miss him. And Lord, may may we be moved by your compassion that we might see the world around us and not just complain, but be moved to tears and moved to response of compassion and outreach and truth-telling that people might repent while they have time. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.